Welcome to the My Muy Bueno Women in Business podcast to inspire, empower, strengthen, support and motivate you on your walk as a woman in business. I'm Justine Murphy, founder and CEO of My Muy Bueno and welcome back to another cram-packed episode. In fact, this one's going to be really cram-packed. I've got an epic guest on and she's going to be sharing everything with you regarding today's, obviously her journey, but today's episode being about navigating the pandemic. It's quite a long interview, so I won't talk too long now. You all know my story of navigating this pandemic in the last two years. And really, I have had to navigate hard and adapt and evolve and adapt some more and sidestep and climb over ginormous, and say hills, they're not hills, they were mountains or bigger than mountains. And I mean, couldn't make up the last two years. We've all had to go through our stuff. But you know what? Ultimately, on the other side of it, and my next guest really demonstrates that perfectly well throughout our interview and where I am now even, on the other side of all of the pandemic nonsense thrown at us in all the ways, it of course has made us stronger, better, better served us and equipped us. And once again, a reminder that no matter what negative stuff and horrible things that we have to ever go through, on the other side is the good stuff. And we wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the bad stuff. So embrace it. But I think it's always bearing that in mind when you're going through it. And remembering when we're going through stuff, it's only temporary. I think that's the most important thing. But with no further ado, let's go straight into this interview. I'll see you on the other side. So I've got the one, the only. Chef Harriet Mansell, everybody. Welcome, Harriet. Hello, Justine. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. It's very good to have you here. And I'm very excited for our chat because there's lots of things in your last busy, busy year that you can be sharing from your world as a woman in business, smashing it as a woman in business. That I think it's going to really resonate, especially for this episode being about navigating the pandemic. I guess no one better than to kickstart things than you. If we can rewind right back, though, tell us a little bit about kind of how you even got into cooking, because you didn't actually you studied in history and politics, right? Yeah, right back to university. Let's start there. I studied history and politics at university. Reason being, I went to a grammar school and the career path that they pushed for was to become a lawyer or a doctor or something, you know, a little bit more academic. And at that point, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life. Although having said that, I did have desire to open a restaurant. Since I was 13 years old, I always pictured opening a restaurant, but I didn't align that desire with being a chef. I didn't know that being a chef was a viable career path. As in, I worked in kitchens in my teenage years. It was a part-time job. It was something that you did in your free time to earn money. It wasn't considered a career path, shall we say, by my school or by my parents. When I was looking at what I was good at, the kind of career path that came up to me was law. And my family said, yeah, go and be a lawyer. And um, I I didn't want to study law at university because I did a little taster weekend at Nottingham. I remember going on a law taster weekend to find out what it was all about and it looked horribly dull. So I ended up going from my interests a bit more, which was history and then tagging on politics. I've always loved history because it felt more like story time. You're learning and analyzing and you're thinking about what's happened and the kind of circumstances of those events. And that interest hasn't gone. Where was the shift then? Where was the change to then kind of say, okay, enough of this? I want to go away and train as a chef and make a career out of this. For me, 
having always worked on the sidelines in hospitality, I paid my way through university by working in hospitality. I moved straight into hospitality after university. I worked a ski season. I went and worked on a first boat when I was 20. Opened up that world to me. And I, I tried an office job. But whilst I was doing my office job in London, I was working in property, I decided it wasn't making me feel happy or alive. And I was looking constantly to the world of food. And I was looking at chefs and being inspired by by them and having worked in kitchens at that point as well I just was so drawn to the world of food it was exciting and I think I basically thought that chefs were rock stars effectively and I kind of wanted in <laughs> nice love it because you even did a stint at one point at Selfridges at Mark Hicks with the Oyster and Champagne Bar that was early on in my uh, transition if you like I was still working at that point in my office job and I approached Hicks I went for an interview to see if they would consider training me or whether I should go to cookery school and Hicks at the time said to me we'll train you come on board with our team start at the Champagne and Oyster Bar in Selfridges it's a bit softer like the, uh, the evenings are a bit of an earlier finish because because it's a department store and try that out but we'll train you and so I started working evenings and weekends there and then at the time made the decision what well the, the swaying factor in making the decision to go to cookery school was I know that if I ever want to get a job on yachts which was what I needed to open up my own restaurant I've always thought quite long term I knew that I would need money and I knew that I could get money on yachts and I also knew that working as a chef I wasn't going to earn any money so I decided it's an investment at this point to go to cookery school but then that sits on my seat and that's the golden pass to getting the right boat jobs. And what I discovered was that was true. That was what I thought. It was indeed. And you went, of course, to the same school as I did, the amazing Tant Marie in Woking in Surrey that sadly is no more. But what a time. How long were you there for? I did the level four diploma, the intensive course, which was quite short. It was about six months, I think. Crammed it all in. Okay. Yeah, it was the real crammer course that I opted for and came straight out of there into my first stage, which was at Noma. Which is amazing as stages go for your first ever stage. That's not too shabby. What an experience. That must have been amazing. That was, yeah, life-changing, really. It changes how you look at the world around you. I was so interested in going there. I'd spent a good couple of years applying for it before I got offered the stage. Wow. Must have massively influenced you because you're drawn to the similar sort of things as Rene and his team. And did it influence you massively or did it further fuel what you already felt and what you were drawn to? There was no other restaurant in the world that I wanted to work at. Noma just stood out as the beacon of where I wanted to be. They weren't number one at that time. They were... <laughs> number two <laughs> but I knew their foraging and their wild foods ethos and that desire to plant them in a time and a place and I knew that they were kind of changing the landscape of cuisine and they were tapping into new flavors and they were really really groundbreaking so everything that I saw that they were doing looking at the world around them just for me was magic and I didn't want to be anywhere else I didn't want to be in a kitchen I thought where you'd be holed up inside with no light I just imagined that Noma was this big glorious light wide open place sat in the heart of nature and it really was to some extent because you got out there and of course you do all your kitchen time, but then you forage with them and you learn so much. And it was so inspiring. And of course, I knew a lot about wild foods already. I knew I wanted to learn more. So it was the obvious place. And then I realized how little I did know about woods. <laughs> but then it just, you know, your knowledge shoots through the roof and you then don't go back. That's amazing. How long were you there for? I was there for about three and a half months. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was a good, decent time then. Amazing. Just to be immersed in their culture and people and all of it. 
yeah, it was just a stage, just an internship, but you still get massively immersed. You're doing service, you know, you move on to different sections and you work effectively as a chef during that period of time. I mean, you are a chef. Of course. Amazing. Okay. So from there, you did a few other different jobs and things, but then it was time to go and join the world of Super Yachts as a private chef which is, of course, how we came to know each other. I got to represent Harriet as her agent and place her on a boat in the Seychelles. And that was the beginning of our first meeting and connection all those years ago, many moons ago. How long ago was that now? I reckon it was... I don't know, maybe 2015 or 16 or 17. I've lost track of time. About five years, something like that, I reckon. Yeah, about five years ago. That sounds about right. At that point, I had come out of Nomura. I'd done a couple of other restaurants in London. I'd run out of money completely. And that took myself to that end point where I had nothing to fall back on. And then I launched into the world of yachts. Because I remember talking to my friend, Chris, and I said, I need to find a really good boat job, but I don't know. All the agents seem a bit difficult to navigate. They haven't got what's quite right. Right. So I was looking for the right yacht chef recruitment agent and I didn't know who to contact. And I remember he said to me at the time, you need to get in touch with Justine. She is specifically a yacht chef recruitment person and she really cares and she's really good at what she does. And for me at that time, I didn't know that there was just a specific yacht chef place. It was all places that did a bit of everything. And for me, that felt too scattergun in its approach. I needed the focus of the chef placement. And that's how I got in touch with you. And you were just like, yep, we're going to get you on an amazing boat and you did there I was flying out to the Seychelles looking for the Qatari there we go boom yes exactly love it and then that was it you ended up having a good few years in the industry right yeah, I did a few different yachts. I did a motor yacht Cloud 9 for about a year. I did another one for a very extended summer season. That was another 60 meter motor. I did, I can't remember how long it was. That was a temporary job in the Seychelles. That was definitely a highlight. I worked with the Murdochs for about a year on a sailing yacht. Probably another one in between as well. But yeah, a good few years of being at sea. Great. Obviously, the purpose and the focus was the vision to fund your restaurant and moving through the steps. But also, did you find that the time on yachts, you know, also you had growth and you learned and it benefited you, especially when you were sole chef on vessels, you were just having to be, you know, do it all, which obviously I find years later when people are like, how do you do all these things? How do you juggle all the balls? And I'm like, well, I was a chef on yachts. So you kind of get used to just doing everything yourself. So I think that's a big part of it because you're super organized, super structured. You're in a completely different league to others, you know, and I'd want to see if that's something that kind of resonates with you as well. I totally agree with you. I think that the training and the discipline that you have to have for yourself personally, as a sole chef, as a yacht chef, you need to get stuff done. So you rely very heavily on yourself in order to get stuff done. I think that that then poses a problem at some point when you then need to transition into managing a team. Because actually, for me, I was very reliant upon myself. And so I've actually had to train myself now to place trust in other people and to build up and inspire those people around me rather than just being like, I can do everything. Because that's the quality that you have as a yacht chef, isn't it? Because you have to over deliver. And also the realization that being so reactive, as any member of yacht crew is, you have to be, you have to jump, you know, they say jump, you say how high you are a little performing monkey, actually, you just have that in you, you want to go and do something and deliver straight away. I've realized that not everybody is like that. And the people in the yachting industry are that way minded. And actually, to a certain extent, that is quite inspiring, because you think about what can be done in a short space of time, you look at things that look nigh on impossible, you're in the middle of the ocean, 
How can you possibly deliver what they're asking for? But somehow you managed to pull it from somewhere. And that's something you take with you as you move forward. You think, well, I can do anything actually, can't I? If we just put our minds to it. I know it's definitely equipped me as a woman in business. So I know for you as well, juggling all the balls all the time. But like you said, then is that learning and that ability to let things go and give them and delegate them and not try and do them all yourself all the time. And that is a personal growth factor element in it all as well. Definitely. So you came off of the arts and then I feel like you went on Great British Menu. Literally, I just feel like that was the path from where I was standing. I was obviously just busy in my mind, my bueno world. But all I just remember is you being off yachts, being on Great British Menu and then bam, you're opening a restaurant. Yeah, that does seem a little insane actually when you say it like that. Okay, so from my perspective, in a nutshell, without, you know, wanging on too much about the ins and outs, I had hit a point where I hadn't taken a holiday in about a decade, you know, because that's what happens when you throw yourself at your career. I had a very clear end goal in mind, which was to open my restaurant. So a lot of my time that I spent working on the boats was all about amassing the right experience. I was working on techniques, ideas. I was thinking about my menu. I was thinking about the business. I was having conversations with accountants. I was looking at properties. I had a five-year business plan. I had it all mapped out. I had my cash flow forecasting, even in a very rudimentary form. I had this idea that my business was going to happen and I took it very seriously. I was plotting my exit from the boats and I didn't know when that would be because I had anticipated that I would need to save X amount of money in order to open up a restaurant. What happened was I finished my last job working on the sailing yacht. It had been such an intense year. There was a couple of like real personal traumatic experiences that occurred in that year as well. And I think I just hit a point where I needed to take a little step back from working. So I took myself off to Bali to go and do a yoga teacher training just for me because I needed to get my head and body back on track. And during that period of time, I really slowed it down. I started to take care of myself and I started to really question the next steps. And I thought, well, there's two options here. One option is to continue working to hit that target figure that you need to open up a restaurant. And I was nowhere near that target figure. You know, I had a small amount of savings in my bank account. When I say small, I mean, yeah, minuscule. But then the flip side of it was I kind of looked at my age and I was 31 at the time. And I thought, hang on, it's going to take you realistically three years, five years to properly settle into having a restaurant. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. If you want to have any hopes of having a family, having a life in the future, getting settled on land, because I'd enjoyed the freedom of moving around the world and the travel, and I couldn't imagine leaving that behind. There was having these other thoughts about, well, hang on, in order to achieve what I want to achieve, I just thought, well, there's a real, gosh, there's a sense of urgency. Time is of the essence. If you want to make this happen, you've got to go right now. And I just remember I was in Bali. It was the 9th of February, 2019. And like a bolt from the blue, I had that feeling and it was the biggest wake up call. And I thought, you've got to get back. So I booked my flight for the following day and I came back and I started looking I knew I wasn't going to be able to open a restaurant straight away because I didn't have the funds. I knew from my accountant who had heavily advised me, you need to test your concept. You're not going to get any injection of cash from any investors. You're not going to be able to prove anything to people until you test your concept. Because as far as everybody else is concerned, nobody knows your desires and your ambitions. Everybody sees that you're a chef who's never owned their own restaurant before. You might have been head chef, but you haven't proven yourself to anybody or yourself. You need to test your concept and see if there's demand for it. So she gave me a bit of a dressing down and I took everything she said so seriously. And I then found a venue that I could hire for four nights a week, the pop-up kitchen in Lyme Regis. And it was just there available, 20 covers per night. 
and I agreed with the lady who owned it. I'd take it for four nights of the week. I'd move in, move out so that the other people could use it on the weekend. And there it was. So in May 2019, the doors opened at the pop-up kitchen, Robin Wilde, in its first inception. Amazing. And how many did you even have on your team at that point? There must be just a few of you just literally in there doing everything, cleaning down, shipping out, back again the following week for another four nights. It's a lot of work and it was just all go, 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 I guess. I convinced a really good friend of mine, Patsy, to move down from Bristol to coincide with my arrival back in the UK. I don't know how I convinced her to do this. I think it was just her time to move back anyway. And so for the first two months, she partnered up with me to help me get it off the ground. So she was front of house. So it was a lot of lifting and shifting. It was a lot of work. And of course, you know, with the start of any business, you do everything. I did everything. I did website, like the photo shoots, getting everyone set up with payment, becoming a sole trader, the branding. And I don't know, all those little frills that go along with opening a business. I thought it was a lot at the time. I mean, looking back at it, it was nothing compared to now. And then I took on ad hoc front of house staff over that summer. It was a lot of work. It was knackering. But after doing that for about six weeks, just this tasting menu with a wine pairing, very, very simple in terms of focus. It wasn't simple in terms of what we were offering. It just was one menu, one wine pairing. It was really well received locally. And out of nowhere, I was contacted by one of the producers from Great British Menu who had heard about it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. It was something at the time that probably, again, we've talked about this on previous episodes. We never get a chance to stop and celebrate the wins. And that sounds like it was a win that probably all went through at such a blur because already the win was your pop-up, which was successful and didn't probably even get a chance to celebrate that properly in its own right. And then this happened, which is another wow. So tell us how, so then that kind of scooped you up to a whole new wave of everything. Well, I was quite flabbergasted. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I said to the producer at the time, you have Michelin star chefs. I am but a lowly pop-up. I have not even had a chance to really set up. I've just got back to England, la la la. And she said, you know that we're trying to showcase emerging faces. You want to open a restaurant, you say, well, this is going to be all the PR that you need. And she said, no matter how you do, maybe you don't get through maybe you do but whatever happens you will not believe the boost that this will do you and your ability to set up a restaurant and so from a business perspective she had me at that and I thought no matter how well I do this will be the PR boost that I need to get my restaurant off the ground in a coastal seasonal town because I didn't want to be in London I did want to be somewhere where I was surrounded by lots of lovely food and you know forageables and so on so I knew that I wanted to be outside of London so it really worked for me amazing and thing is, you grew up in Devon and obviously Lilac and Robin Wilde are in, you're in Lyme Regis. Is that where you actually grew up? Is that why you were so drawn back there and to the inspiration of everything around you and where your heart is really? Yes, I grew up in Devon and I went to school in a place called Colleton. There's a little grammar school there that I went to. And that's probably about a 15 minute drive from Lyme Regis, maybe 10 minutes. It's nothing. I came over here, you know, I had a couple of friends who lived here when I was growing up, but it wasn't where I, you know, hung out necessarily. But it just so happened. I think there are moments in your life where you get a really strong sense of intuition and you listen out for the signs that, you know, that you need to hear. And at that moment, I was definitely kind of eyes wide open, just thinking, oh, well, I'm not sure what direction I am going to go in. And, you know, I knew that to get a restaurant off the ground, I would need to find a venue. I didn't cover this bit, but I'll tell you about it now. I said, okay, I need a venue. Where am I going to go? 
Am I going to go and move into a house? Am I going to open up the doors and have a supper club? Or am I going to go and find a town hall? Am I going to do an informal supper? I just need some place that people can come to and I can cook for them. And so what I thought was, well, if I want to convince a venue to let me hire it, I need to appear like a business. I need to have a glossy facade. So I thought, well, how am I going to do this? I need photographs of my food. I need a website. I need to demonstrate to somebody that I'm taking this really seriously. So I had booked myself in for a photo shoot with a local photographer called Matt Austin. And he was doing all my photos of my food. And I told him I wanted to do something. And he said, you need to contact Ali from the pop-up kitchen. She will probably let you hire her space. And I hadn't heard of it. So I made a note of it then. And then I met another person locally who was a mushroom farmer and mushroom forager. And he said to me, you need to contact Ali from the pop-up kitchen. And I thought, well, this is two people who've told me this now. And then somebody else mentioned it. And I thought, well, I can't continue to ignore this. And then the woman in question, Ali, she's very busy. She runs a very hectic schedule and she didn't get back to me. But I just kept persevering. And I'm so glad I did because it was the most magical opportunity. So that's how I ended up in Lyme Regis. But what's really great is it's only half an hour away from where I did actually grow up. You're right where you're meant to be. That's the thing. Okay, so before I take us away too far from the Great British Menu part of things, swinging back to that, off you went. You said, yes, please. Thank you very much. This is a great PR. And no matter what happens, let's do it. What was the whole experience like? Well, I did the filming in 2019, November 2019. And obviously, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. I knew it would take a lot of prep. And it did. It took me an awful lot of time to sort out all the props and everything. I'm not proud to say this. I didn't get an opportunity to practice my dishes. The reason being, I was working flat out to get my pop-up restaurant off the ground as a one-man band. There's not enough time. If I was going to do Great British Menu again, I would say, I'm going to prep every dish about 25 to 30 times, you know, and actually put that effort in. But at that time, I just thought, well, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to give it my best shot. I thought it all through and I didn't have any other choice. I had to make money. I had to get the restaurant going. And so I just turned up kind of hoping for the best. It was an amazing eye-opening opportunity and I had a great time and I learned so much and met some amazing people and the producers of that show, they're so kind and supportive and nurturing. They really don't make you feel bad or anything like that. I had Richard Corrigan as my judge. I scored quite low. I think I scored like sixes and things like that, which is absolutely what I should have scored for what I was putting forward. Not that it was bad, but if I were to go and do it now, I would be hoping to be. You're getting nines and tens, Harriet. Yeah, you would. Especially if you practice them 25 times before doing them. <laughs> God. But one thing I was really pleased with was there were two courses that get blind taste tested and that was the pre-dessert and the canapé and I did come out on top on those. Well done. What an experience though and to have that as part of your background, your repertoire your CV and just your story and your journey, really, you know, it's molded you, shaped you, strengthened you. And then from there, you obviously found your site for Robin Wilde's was the next focus. Yes, there's a local couple who came to eat at the pop-up kitchen and they're connected to the food industry. Um, they said, we have this craft shop. If you want to put in a planning application, we can slightly hold the property for you. So they supported me in that way. They didn't anticipate the pandemic occurring. They very kindly held the property and I put the planning application in and Dawson Council took absolutely flipping ages to get it through. So then that was during lockdown one. Then I got the planning approval come through in July of 2020. So after that first lockdown had lifted and then just went full steam ahead with making it happen. Of course, the thought flashed through my mind, should we change this course? But it didn't really amount to much because the path that I was on was not going to change. 
I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I just thought, well, there might be difficulties ahead, but let's just go. So at what stage from kind of opening your restaurant then were the kind of different sections of pandemic, lockdown, hurdles, everything starting to be thrown at you as, I mean, opening any new business has already got so many different elements of challenges within it, let alone a ginormous pandemic snowballing through it all as well. We had a couple of soft launches, but then our official launch night was the 28th of October, 2020. So if you remember back to that time, the next lockdown was announced fairly shortly after. So we got four four days of trading in, which was quite good for us at the time in some senses, because we got a fair bit of publicity, you know, on the flip side of things. But on the other side of things, we entered a period of time where we hadn't even really started. We quickly tried to diversify by offering a takeaway menu. We realized the challenges that that had in a winter seaside town. Was the demand going to be there for a non-established restaurant who was going to be offering a takeaway menu that wasn't any representation of what the normal menu is? So it was just kind of fraught with challenges. We do something so specific. How do you turn that into a takeaway? We just didn't really have the platform to do it. And you didn't, did you? Because I remember you didn't compromise. You were like, you know, we could do takeaway, but then we're going to compromise what we're all about and what our menu's about and it just doesn't translate. So just no. We did do it for one week. Oh, did you? Yeah. We did it because it felt like we had all this energy from opening. Where was that energy going to go? We thought we've got to try. We wanted the buzz of at least trying to sell food and to have that interaction with customers. We did a winter warmers menu. We did venison stew and party ingredients. But again, it detracted from what we were doing. And we thought, are we going to confuse people? Start taking it off on a whole different route of sticky toffee puddings and constantly warming, changing menus and then try and open the restaurant again and go, well, this is what we're actually about. So no. Did it give you a bit of breathing space, though, anyway? Because all the busyness of just opening and everything happening at once and also just processing the pandemic and all of that. Did you have a bit of a breather in that time or where were you at? Gosh, it's funny. So that was November that we had as that lockdown. And I remember going, well, actually, the refurb hadn't even finished. I remember when we opened, we still had the builders in the kitchen five minutes before dinner service. So we actually just looked at that time and thought, let's use this to get everything finished. Think about our reopening menu. Had a last minute opportunity that came up at that time because Channel 4 got in touch with this random thing. They were looking for local chefs and they had it agreed that they could um, film during the lockdown. So I ended up doing this funny little cookery show called Chef versus Corner Shop. I don't know, one of those random things that you do. That was a really weird little show. I was opposite this guy called Dean Edwards and we had to go into a corner shop and spend £10 and then make two-course menu that was, it was quite funny. Has it ever aired? Oh yeah, it came out in December of that year. It was sandwiched between Come Dine With Me and The Simpsons. And I do remember a lot of people saw it and they were like, what is going on here? It was funny. It's a pandemic. It's crazy times. Allowances are allowed. I got paid to do it. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, I can't complain. Needs must. And then there was the whole thing of being a new business for you and all your staff and the whole furlough situation as well. I mean, that was hectic because you couldn't put them on furlough, right? Yeah, it was a bit of a shocker, actually. I had an accountant that I still haven't named and shamed them because I'm taking the line of acting with dignity on that one until I sort it out. And I actually still have an ongoing claim about it at the moment. I'm just deciding whether to to take it to that next step. Oh, God, the pandemic still hasn't quite left us, has it? The the hangover. It's a year, isn't it? The hangover from all of it. It's still ongoing, yeah. What was a real shame was that my employees at that time, I had some full-timers who came on my books in October... I also had some part-timers and my accountant made the mistake of only putting my part-timers on payroll. They missed my full-timers. I don't know how because they had all the information. We checked it with them multiple times on email. There's a strong case as to how they missed it. 
well, how they missed it was their main person went on holiday that week and forgot to hand over. Of course, they're trying to wiggle out of responsibility for it. And, you know, I do understand that in another month, the impact wouldn't have been there. If you miss a payroll deadline, then actually you can still put that through and there's no implications. But that particular month was absolutely pivotal with everything that had happened that year and knowing the impact of deadlines. If the deadline had been missed from a payroll perspective and with furlough, you know, being in existence from that time, they ought to have been hypervigilant. Unfortunately, they weren't and they let the ball drop on my business at a very early stage. My part-time got furloughed throughout the entire period that then followed, but my full-timers didn't. And it was obviously crippling because I paid money to one of them in particular because she was my business partner at the time. The other two, I had to come to an agreement with regarding what was going on and what was affordable versus what was not. And obviously, it's not like I was sat on bucket loads of cash and just a person trying to set up their ambition of having a restaurant. And I had these two chefs and I didn't know what to do with them. And I was fighting to get them on furlough. And obviously, they went on universal credit. I mean, universal credit was like about 400, 500 quid a month. Um, And that's what I was on at the time because I was too young. So I wasn't entitled to anything other than universal credit. You're getting something, but it was really challenging. We then opened it up again in May. And then I did lose my two chefs at that point because they'd had to move on. And it was actually the right reasons why they left. It wasn't to do with the furlough, why they left. They came back initially. But if I do think about the impact that that had, you know, furlough was in in place to protect businesses, to ensure that they could retain employees. And the government took a very hard line, black and white stance on the matter, because of course we appealed it with HMRC. I had our local MP, you know, appealing the case. It went to the highest level it could possibly have gone to. They really escalated it. The Telegraph did coverage on the furlough issue that I was experiencing. We got used as an example. And unfortunately, there was no wiggle room. It was black and white. And the accountant who made the mess up just backed into a corner and just said, we're not taking responsibility for any of this, even though the paper trail and everything was there. It just said, no, no, no. And I just said, okay, well, what are we going to do? So I lodged a claim with their insurers. And that's what's ongoing. Wow. They failed you, you know, you already had enough going at you at the time to be just trying to navigate. Yeah. But then on top of it, for the people you were paying who are meant to be in your corner, having your back to not have your back. I mean, holy smoke, that's a lot. Whatever happens to yourself, you deal with. I'm not stood here complaining that I didn't get furlough, for instance, because that's just the nature of where my business fell. I definitely fell through the gaps or cracks on almost every piece of support that was available just because of the age of my business. But I think the worst thing is when people are impacted, it's the people in your business, when they're impacted, it's quite a huge burden to have to carry. And I think I felt that in particular this January, there was a moment where I knew that I didn't have enough money to pay my employees, you know, after Omicron and and all the rest of it and winter, you know, all the rest of it just adding up. And I definitely just looked at the situation and I thought, well, I mean, I spoke to you at the time, you know, that I was kind of in crisis mode at that point and it was a heavy burden. And I think my mental health was suffering as a consequence actually, I was able to find a loan, which was what saved me. And we're back in a good place now. But there have been definite moments when you're accountable for looking after other people and their situation, the burden that that places on you as an individual, you feel incredibly isolated and lonely as the business owner, you feel incredibly lacking support. And you've been tremendous support for me in that sense, you've given me the pep talks and motivation that I've needed at those hard times, but then you get through them. And then you work out how to not get into that situation again. 
it is a constant learning roller coaster of emotions and growth and situations and hurdles and the good and the bad and the messy and the complicated and the stressful and the everything. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. You know, this is the realities, the brutal realities that people don't realize behind the scenes as business owners. And like you said, the accountability we have for our team, that responsibility, people don't see those things. They kind of know, but don't really know. That is the reality of it all, really. And when you are kind of dragging yourself through a winter and finances are low and it's the brutal, harsh truth of it all and having to kind of head down and crack on and get through it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And as we all should be doing, we all celebrate our successes and quite rightly so. We have to mark those moments, those monumental things that occur in our life where we go, yes, we made it. People do see the glossy facade of the business. And of course, you don't go around broadcasting all the crap that goes along. I think there was a moment where I nearly made that mistake. I think I called out for help and you pulled me up on it, Justine. And you said, actually, that's not the place you ask for help, Harriet. Pull that one back, get some support behind the scenes. And I remember that quite clearly. It really resonated with me and stuck with me with thinking about other things as well. But yeah, you do go through an awful lot. And you also told me nothing amazing happens without a lot of hard work. And that really struck a chord with me because I thought, no, you're right. I think a lot of business owners, including myself, we have this amazing vision in mind that comes from a place of passion and ambition and all of these wonderful things that you have. And you know that you could make it happen, but it's going to be a journey filled with ups and downs, isn't it? And you're not going to shout out about the downs, that's for sure. I think, you know, when you've got vision, you've got purpose, you've got drive, you're constantly working towards the vision, working towards the bigger picture while dealing with all the other day to day, month to month, and all the other things that get thrown into the equation at the same time. You get taken off of the vision because you're just dealing with real life and 18 hours of just another day, another week, another month. Oh crap, it's payroll again. Why are we in April already? What's going on? Back on the path again. Go, go, go. You know, and it's just a constant. And next thing it's December and it's just like another year has gone. But we are constantly chipping away because I think we're always veering back to the path, though. We're always coming back to it, even though we're constantly sucked in and taken away down different routes of just being women in business and running our businesses. But then also because the other stuff has to happen. But also then, you know, eyes on the prize, back on track again, course correcting, stronger for it, better for it, more focused for it from all the other stuff that you're kind of navigating and dealing with at the same time. So I think it's constantly bettering us all anyway, without us even knowing it sometimes. Definitely. And I think we almost go through these seasons of change. You know, we have our little periods of reset, our fallow periods of regeneration, and sometimes where we just allow things to kind of roll. And then we move into these periods of time where we go and make things happen and we go and make the change. And then the little ripple effect of that goes and happens. And I think for me, there's been this huge, I mean, I'm enjoying the process so much, this learning process as to how to navigate a year, a month, a day, and go with those feelings and also tap into our own intuition and that kind of power that we as women do have and quite often don't actually harness enough. So I think there's a lot to listen to if we're making the space to listen to it. I agree. Food for thought, everyone. It's so true. And it is that power of intuition and stopping long enough. Again, we get so consumed with our day to day and everything else to pause and have that time. And especially I find when, you know, if I'm getting really overwhelmed, that's my time that I need to just stop, put it all down, listen to my gut, stop all the noise and then listen to your intuition and just pick up the balls again or let some go. And then that kind of gets you back on the right path, the right track, the right everything. And just having that grounding, I think. And we need that, you know, again, we just 
always at a thousand miles an hour all the time and we have to take stock. So that takes us to so Hodden. You see, we're at the point of pandemic, open Robin Wild, but then that wasn't enough because then also you're like, hey, I'm also going to open a wine bar and a restaurant with like sharing dishes, tapas style, because, you know, I haven't got anything else going on on my plate. So let's open another place. Yeah, again, when you say out. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I shouldn't be mocking you because it's everything I do as well. Let's do 4,000 more things. Too funny, actually. So I started looking for a second kitchen and some storage for the wine because Robin Wild is in a very, very small site up a very small, narrow, hilly road in Lyme Regis. So I thought, okay, we need some extra storage. I actually want to get some more chefs in because I'd really like to increase the offering. I've got some ambitions for Robin Wild. And my journey led me to discovering that there was a place nearby and and I came and looked at it and I found out that it was the beautiful 400-year-old historic cellar made of blue lias, which is the stone of this area. The walls are full of fossils, beautiful stone flooring. It's just so full of character. It was a wine bar in the making. And I just looked at it and I said, oh my God, this is a wine bar. And I had this amazing flash of enthusiasm and also the kind of momentary calm, being able to kind of think about this in a more creative way. And I thought, wow, well, my five-year plan was to open the second wine bar that's going to support Robin Wilde and use up all the waste and the two are going to be symbiotic. Oh my God, I can't pass this opportunity. And I just, I felt like a crazed woman. And I was talking to the landlord and Annie and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I think they warmed to me and saw my enthusiasm and my eyes lighting up. And I don't know how it happened, but I felt very uh, over enthused and equipped to do this. It was almost like something came over me. And before I knew it, I'd signed the lease. And then before I knew it, the refurbishment had taken place. And then it opened on the 4th of August last year. I just had this real surge of going if we open this second place it's going to be really tough we haven't even really opened the first place I kind of thought in for a penny in for a pound I then thought well it's going to be hard enough already you're throwing yourself so hard at this why not just like make this nice little infrastructure that's going to work long term and then I thought well we can use up all the waste why we want a wine bar in the long term is to feed into this symbiotic relationship that these two businesses will have they'll work in harmony with one another people can go for drinks in the one place and come for dinner. One can be a more casual offering. I thought also in a coastal town where we actually don't have the number of like really, really super passionate people working or ready to work. I thought if we can work on creating this creative hub, we'll attract more people. And that's what I want. This creative hub at the heart of the community where we were pushing because my core values a little bit like yours. You know, I always come back to them. We've got ambition and passion as our top two. If we want to be ambitious and we want to create this really passionate kind of creative hub, we really need to have something that's going to bring people here. So why not facilitate that happening? And these conversations that we started having with people very early on, Faye and Andrew, the chefs who now work here, really, really talented, passionate chefs who were happy and so excited to come on board. And then Elena being so excited to come on board as well. I realized are the right people here, even in the face of the staff shortages, which of course have also massively impacted us but I thought the core people are here and we're ready to make this work and so that's what we're now working on like trying to really become a creative hub it was a business decision this will facilitate this this will make Robin Wild better and of course that first six months of opening the wine bar were carnage because you know they just are and it was still a pandemic and everyone was off with COVID it was crap it was just struggling to breathe wasn't it I've been to Lilac and am I allowed to say that like why I couldn't go to Robin Wilde can we talk about it now because I haven't said anything. I couldn't do anything I couldn't even post about Lilac on social media because then people would be like why did she go to Lilac but not Robin Wilde I thought Robin Wilde was the main reason to go there what happened Harriet <laughs> I know Harriet got COVID 
Yeah, Harriet got COVID, we can tell you now. So I couldn't go to Robin Wild. I'm glad I at least got to go to Lilac, which was amazing. I'm so glad that you can come in this year when we'll be fabulous. Yes, exactly. But I must say as well, just in general, the whole, I mean, Lime Regis is beautiful. I went down with my boys. You got the fossils, you got the beach, the pebbles. You got the whole kind of seaside vibes, but also this just really beautiful, quaint, charmingness to it as well. It's not cheesy. It's just got so much character and it's beautiful and just walking around and, you know, we had some, we're quite fortunate for some really good weather when we were there and what a special place to go and have a weekend. So if you're listening, don't just go for a day, go and book in and go and have an actual full weekend there. I would love to do so much more. You're surrounded by vineyards and all sorts of incredible artisan producers. There's so much in the whole area of Lyme Regis, right? Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a historic seaside town with a harbour. The Cobb is famous. They've done so many movies movies here lately as well you know from Ammonite with Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan they've been filming the new Willy Wonka that was being filmed a couple of months ago it's becoming a little hot spot for lots of people and it's a great distance from London so we get lots and lots of people coming down just the weekend and it's got that kind of bougie luxy vibe to it and I'd say you're influencing a lot of the change that's happening there with what you're doing with your restaurants, your wine bar and, you know, Robin Wilde and Lilac is definitely a very significant part in shaping and molding what that is going to look like in the years ahead, to be honest. I think so. I wouldn't have said that before because I would have viewed that as an egotistical comment, but I don't anymore. I look at it in more of a kind of pragmatic way. One of the reasons why I was very happy to set up here, not just because it was half an hour from where I grew up, was, of course, I knew that Mark Hicks was here with his Oyster and Fish house. Massive name, you know, amazing chef. He's already established in this area. We've got River Cottage, about 10 minutes drive from Lyme Regis. The headquarters is fantastic. We've got Michael Keynes at Limston Manor in Devon. We've got some solid chefy credentials going on down here. We're on that foodie trail. So lots of people do pass through here because they come for food. That was something that was appealing to me. And I think it's only going to carry on establishing itself. Yeah, I think it's going to be a beacon of starting to inspire others and inspire others to rip the Band-Aid off and follow their dreams. You know, I'm sure you've inspired many, especially as a, a woman in business down there as well. The food side of things and the culture. Lime Rangers is a little bit different. Speaking of you, Furley Rettingstall and Michael Cade, you did a little cheeky bit of filming on Channel 4 recently, didn't you? <laughs> yes, that was one of the more random things that has happened to me this year. <laughs> I hear you did a vegan gravy cook-off. They wanted to see who could put the most flavour in the vegan gravy. Is that right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Hugh Friendly Whittingstall came to eat at Robin Wilde about two or three weeks ago now. And he got in touch shortly afterwards to say, hey, I've had this really random idea, but I want to take chefs who usually make really pretty plates of food and ask them to make a vegan gravy, effectively a brown sauce. Would you be up for it? And I thought, well, hell yeah. <laughs> Damn right. Why not? And let's just say it now, because it's going to wear soon but obviously Harriet won she did the best the blind taste test and Harriet's gravy not Hughes not Michael's Harriet Mansell's <laughs> mug moment of the year. It was a really fun afternoon of just cooking these vegan gravies together. They were also different. They were also interesting. Obviously, I was lucky that they picked mine because I can now have that feeling of smugness. I don't know how much of it will air on the show. The you winning it part, for sure, of course. We shall see. But I'm looking forward to it coming out. Apparently, it's due or something. So. In June. There we go. We'll be watching out for it. So a few other things, obviously. You're smashing it. Robin Wilde, Lilac, doing great things. I'm looking forward to coming and visiting both this year, for sure sure let's just not forget something hugely significant both restaurants both robin wilde and lilac 
are both featured in the Michelin Guide of this year, 2022. That's major. Congratulations. I'm beaming for you, so I'm sure you have pinched yourself in all the ways going through everything we've discussed today, like to come out to the other side and to achieve that. I mean, wow, that just really gives you that recognition of what you're doing and by the most prestige of prestige, my heart swells for you. And I'm just super excited for everything to come because it's not just going to be being featured. Well, you're going to get your star, obviously. Robin Wilde's going to get a star, 100%. Your time will come. All in good time, like everything. It's all going to come in layers. Now you're just going all bashful and quiet. (laughs) I adore path that myself and my team are on because I wouldn't be doing anything else and I know that we've got a way to go as a team you know we have our ambitions and I think that to be able to achieve those ambitions would give such a feeling of pride and we felt it already with getting into the Michelin Guide you know you don't apply for that they inspect you without you knowing and it did feel fab it was just a little bit of early recognition and of course we want to take it to the next step if we can because we are ambitious and we love what we do and there's only one direction we're going to go in we're going to get better we're going to improve and i'd love to see where that could go to from an economic perspective it would mean the restaurant would be busier all year round so as a business owner i'm like aim for the stars don't you (laughs) but also it's just testament to and in fact my last episode was about authenticity you know marching to the beat of our own drum and you've really shown that with all that you've created you know you've stayed true to what your purpose is and your vision for your business your brand your two sister restaurants and every element of it, you know, your vision about sustainability, who you are as a woman in business, who you are as Harriet Mansell, just in your own right, and as a chef and how you've evolved. And I think just the right people have been drawn to you. And it's no surprise that Michelin have then recognized that and eaten your food and it does what it says on the box. It's you on a plate. So I think that's really special and it should be championed, applauded and not ever lessen those feelings of how big an accomplishment that is. So well done. Thank you. There you go. That is the right answer. Exactly. Accept it all. And then last year, you were chef to watch at the National Restaurant Awards as well. So you've just been flying the flag all over the place, which is amazing. And then you've got Wilderness Festival you guys are doing this year. Is that Robin Wilde doing that or Lilac or kind of both or just you? No, it's just me. It's Harriet Mansell at Wilderness. Social Pantry do a tent where they get guest chefs to come and deliver a three-course sharing menu, vegetarian focus, and they always get great chefs doing it. And so I was thrilled this year when they asked me to do it because it's such a great festival. You know, I've actually never been to it, but I've always wanted to go to it. You know, you get to go and kind of, like you say, fly the flag for yourself and for your restaurant. And you get to go and connect with all these other chefs who are there and go and see what they're doing and eat their food and go to all these fantastic talks. So I can't wait to go and do it. When is the festival? When are you going to be there? Are you going to be kind of certain dates or? First week of August. So I'm doing Sunday the 7th. I'll be doing food for the whole day, which is cool. But serving about 350 people is what I've been told. Busy, busy. Nothing new there. No sweat. It's their catering team, actually, that prepare the food. You'll have a glass of wine in your hand by 12. The way it works is that um, I come up with a menu and they come down and taste the menu and we agree on things. And then they give that to their caterers. And so I'll be up in London at the end of next month. Actually, I'll tell you about that. 
31st of May, um, coming up for my tasting with them to see if they've replicated the menu correctly. Then we make any final tweaks and then that then gets delivered on the day. And of course, myself and I bring another chef with me to make sure that they're delivering it correctly and then more do like the presentation and the plating. So it's actually a really great gig. Sounds fantastic. Very excited for you. That's brilliant. We've covered everything, literally. That's very exciting. I'm very excited for you. I'm very excited for Robin Wilde and Lilac for this summer ahead. Super busy in all the ways. And we'll be putting everything. So if you go to this podcast page that you're on, on Apple or wherever you're listening to this podcast, you'll find all the links to Harriet's socials, to the Robin Wilde site, Lilac site, everything. So do go on there. Do book in advance because they're going to be busy, 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 especially once school holidays start and so on. And go and immerse yourself in Lyme Regis and meet Harriet, eat her food, enjoy her team, and you will not be disappointed. Harry, I'm super excited for you. I'll be booking. I'll be down for sure in August. Well, I'll see you before then, but I can't wait to come back to Lyme Regis and see all that you are doing this year and more. Take two. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on. I think it's a really great episode. I think everyone's going to really be hooked. I reckon we can have all the yacht chefs listening to this episode too, actually really inspiring for those wanting to come off of yachts and transitioning off of yachts and so much more as well the extra layer to all of it and then just the reminder to everyone else about you know all the hurdles and pitfalls we've had to go through individually but also you know together lots of similarities to just navigate and get through which only strengthen us equip us and better us as women in business on the other side thank you so much for having me what an honor to be invited onto your podcast and being able to yeah fly that flag for women in different corners of business and what is involved with like you say the journey and the pitfalls and the exciting moments so thank you thank you very much Wow, what an interview. Oh my goodness. I hope you enjoyed that. Massively inspiring. Any yacht chefs wanting to come off of yachts? I'm sure Harriet's story and everything she shared will have inspired you too. And just where she is now. I mean, you know, coming off of the yachts and starting everything up and now both her restaurants in the Michelin Guide. Huge things ahead for Harriet. She's hugely inspiring, an incredible woman, amazing chef. She is a force of nature. Please do go and give her a visit and uh, go and meet her and eat her food. She's a good egg in all the ways, which is why she's also my friend. And that's it for today. Lots more ahead. Still a few more episodes to go of this season. Season three, as always, have a fantastic next fortnight. Keep all your ducks in a row. Keep powering on. And no matter what gets thrown your way, it's going to be A-OK and some in all the ways. Till then, take care.